Hello everybody, joining me on the US Sports Podcast today, he went from Stockport to the NBA, John Amici. Episode 12 of the US Sports Podcast with me, Max Whittle. No one's made that journey from Stockport to the NBA other than John Amici, and it's he who joins me on the show today. Back in February 2007, after his retirement from the NBA, where he played for Cleveland, Orlando and Utah, Amici became the first former NBA player to come out publicly after doing so in his book, Man in the Middle. Since then, he's been regarded as one of the world's most high-profile gay athletes. We got into all sorts of different topics, as is always the case with John, who isn't afraid to speak his mind, as you'll find out on this podcast. How does a man go from growing up in Stockport to play in the NBA? We also talked about his relationship with former Utah Jazz coach Jerry Sloan, who John says hated him at a time when John was beginning to live more openly gay whilst with Utah. We also talked about the horrifying child abuse cases that are coming out across football in this country, gymnastics, in the United States and, of course, other sports around the world. Why Phil Jackson used the word posse to describe LeBron James's business associates, the terrible state, in John's opinion, of basketball in the UK, and whether we are further advanced within sport on race issues or sexuality. The US Sports Podcast is sponsored by our partners at redzonesports.com, the bespoke British bookmaker for American sports, as well as the best odds on US sports, money can't buy prize promotions, and their very own cheerleading squad. You can get an exclusive £60 deposit match bonus as a new customer by using deposit code USSP on your first deposit. Red Zone is for over 18s only. Betting should be fun, so please gamble responsibly. That's redzonesports.com and promo code USSP. My four storylines are coming up, including the tragic death of legendary NBA reporter Craig Sager. But let's get straight to my guest first, John Amici. John Amici, thanks for joining us. Lovely home you've got here. Man cave or library? Definitely library. Definitely library. So I've got here that you wrote on your school card that your ambition was to play on an NBA championship team in the States and earn a lot of money. Your school ambition coincided with you starting at the age of 17 when you started playing basketball. How was the dream realised so late? Uh, Well, I mean, I just didn't know anything about basketball until that point. I'd never heard of it. I'm not really interested in sport. Uh, fundamentally. I mean, every, anybody who knows me knows that. I'm not an avid watcher. I watch enough of the NBA to stay abreast so that as an NBA ambassador, I can at least be current because I think it's disappointing if you're a kid and you ask me about stuff and I don't know what's going on. Um, but I certainly wouldn't watch any other sport unless somebody was paying me to do it. Um, and that includes the Olympics. Um, so, I, I, But I found basketball because a man approached me to um, and told me that I could be great at something, and um, and I had not, had not that not occurred to me before that that I could be great at something. Yeah, my next question it might sound bizarre to some people, but I guess because you've just answered like that, do you actually like basketball? I like it. Um, I just don't. I just don't love it. I mean, sport is a stupid thing to love. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just is. It's a fundamentally dumb thing to love. You should really love it. You should re- Sorry, you should really like it. You should really be passionate about it if you enjoy watching it. You should be engaged with it if your children are doing it. You should be um, motivated by it if you see amazing stories within sport. But I think love is something that is a little more carefully shared than that. And, uh, you, you know, I respected my sport 
I think that's self-evident by the effort that I put in to be good at it. Um, and, and indeed to play basketball when I had no business being able to compete with people who'd been playing their whole life. And if that's not enough for people, then tough. Are you referring to playing or watching or both? Because I, I feel like sometimes, especially with football here, that it gives people an excuse to go out on a Saturday and just be a little bit of a hooligan or let out their frustrations. Are you talking about following a sport or playing a sport as, as to why you shouldn't love it? No, I think you should like it regardless of whether you... If you're going to do it well, you have to like it at least. If you're going to follow it with any kind of verve, if you're going to pay the amount of money people have to now pay to either watch it on television with a subscription or watch it in person, which is now prohibitively expensive for some, uh, or watch it in the pub. Um, I think you obviously have to like it, but... I don't know. I would never use the same word to describe my feelings towards a sport as I would my feelings towards my children. That's a good point. <laughs> when you were in the NBA, did guys just want to talk about basketball or were there enough people that you know would like to uh, talk about at your level of education? I think, well, I mean, I, you can be smart without having a, de a degree, mm -hmm. per se. And... Um, you know, I think people fundamentally misunderstand basketball players. I don't know every um, every sports person from every background, obviously, but the ones that the athletes that I've met, especially in basketball, are switched on, tuned into the world, interested in the subjects around us. I've said this to people before. I remember the <clears throat> election cycle. It must have been two thousand. Uh, when we invited uh, a couple of politicians into our locker room to talk to us about why we should vote for them, to talk to us about what their vision was for the future and whether we should be surrogates or for them. Um, and I think most people wouldn't expect that. I've had conversations at 30,000 feet about systemic racism. I've had conversations at 30,000 feet about um, how women should be talked about. In, in, by by men and, and what responsibilities men have for raising children about the conversations have been amazing from politics to sociology to psychology and obviously there's other stuff too obviously there are times when you're just exhausted and you just want to play some video games <clears throat> there are times when I was just studying and had to get that done and there were times when you'd be on a plane and you'd lost badly or even won unexpectedly and there would just be a kind of eerie silence on the plane as people just kind of gathered themselves, knowing that the great excitement of this is great, but we have to play tomorrow. Or the great sadness of this is great, but we have to play tomorrow. How happy are you that Stan Van Gundy, Greg Popovich have spoken out about Donald Trump being elected US president? You had Popovich relating it to Rome and the fall of Rome, and you've got Stan Van Gundy saying that he couldn't stand the fact that 50% of the arena that he was playing in, that his team were playing in, voted for Trump. I have very much enjoyed watching people speak out, um, whether it be, uh, you know, LeBron James and what he said, or, or even the fact that he wore that safety pin on the cover of, uh, I forget which magazine it was now, but there was a magazine recently he was featured in, uh, Sports Illustrated, wasn't it, for the Sports Illustrated Athlete of the Decade? Sports Person of the Year. Sports, yeah, Sports Person of the Year, but pretty, pretty special, and he chose to make a statement in that without even saying a word. Popovich is exactly what you'd expect. Um, you would expect that he's a man of principle who would demand that those around him, those who lead him, even by name, 
should also have principles. So I think it's um, it's absolutely appropriate. I know that there are some, and I've heard them online, and then smack them down brutally, um, suggesting that athletes shouldn't be role models. They should just shut up and play. They should shut up and coach. And I think that people who believe that should shut up and stop watching because these are the same athletes that you demand if they misbehave, you're the first one online to say, oh, this is terrible. I pay so much money to watch such and such play and they can't even behave well. Mm. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about their touchline celebrations that you think are too much or their off-the-field, off-the-court behavior that you think is not right or appropriate. People are so quick to talk about them. And they may not use the word role model, but absolutely what they mean is they've let us down as a role model because they haven't let you down in terms of scoring or playing. That's not what you mean. And then all of a sudden, when it comes to the big issues, things of real importance, um, a leader of America who's going to terrify 50%, more than 50% of the population in the next four years because he is irrational, uh, thoughtless, vindictive, puerile, petulant, then yes, yes, people with power should speak out about man-children who become the most powerful person in the world. Which is now what he is, frighteningly. Uh, I don't know how aware you are of the NFL, but there's a couple of coaches in that league who have voted for Trump. One of them wrote an open letter to him. Another one said he voted for Trump. If you were in that locker room, would you refuse to play for that coach? Nope. Business? I, I completely understand the business of playing for somebody. But if if my coach has the right to speak up about the fact that they're willing to vote for a misogynist, racist, xenophobe, because they think that he brings a moral compass, um, then I have the right to say that my coach is flawed in every aspect of their logic and mistaken in their interpretation of the behaviors of this man. Uh, I've got every right to disagree and say so, as publicly as they say so. Let's go back to uh, when you played in the NBA. You went undrafted. So at that point, are you looking for work or did teams come to you? Because I know that Cleveland eventually signed you. Yeah, no, no, nobody came to me. I <clears throat> I remember having a conversation with my agent, Bill Sweek, and he and I, we just spent weeks on the phone with each other. Well, I was trying to just work out. Essentially, we'd realize all I needed to do, I just had to work out. I just had to constantly get myself into a, the kind of athlete they were looking for. I even moved. I moved from <clears throat> Toledo, Ohio, where I was staying, uh, with the family that took care of me during my high school career. And I moved to Arizona in order to be with a trainer who had been recommended to get people like me, who were not the greatest athletes in the world, to at least look like an athlete. And um, so I really went to great lengths. Um, and I had no money. So I just went, I was going deeper and deeper into debt, renting a, an apartment, renting a, a car. Everything was costing me money. And on the off chance that I would get a, an offer. And nobody offered. So we, we essentially went around begging. We went around and we went to um, Phoenix Suns. Um, they were kind of, yeah, maybe if there's nobody else. Um, the only team that showed any real interest um, was the Orlando Magic, and they, they allowed me into their summer league, which I think then, I don't know if it still is, I'm out of the loop here, but it used to be the Long Beach, um, the Long Beach summer tournament um, that a lot of marginal pros and former pros and, and then guys who were just trying their hand wanted to be in it. And I got there, I was in tremendous shape, amazing shape. I'd really done a good job with that. I'd worked out 
every day, eight hours a day, uh, and was ready. And I did a great job in that tournament. And then we went off to Atlanta to with with a with a smaller crew. It was twenty people in that first tournament. The second tournament was that Orlando team essentially with the coach in Atlanta. Uh, obviously, not the veterans, just the guys who were trying out. Played pretty well there, and ended up being signed to a a minimum year-long contract, uh, which didn't, you know, doesn't sound like much to many people, I'm sure. But for me, it was my it was my in my back in because it wasn't my first team. Uh, that was my back into the league. That's summer league, by the way. It's in Vegas now, so I don't, I don't know how you would have gone there. <laughs> you know what? In all my years, I've never been to Vegas. I've never been to Vegas, I, and because I'm a geek, the only things I'm interested in seeing in Vegas are uh, the Star Trek exhibit, which I know is at the Hilton Hotel, or at least it used to be, um, and probably Cirque du Soleil. That's about it. You yeah. wouldn't have made the NBA then. You would have been too busy uh, exactly. doing that. Yeah. Um, bizarrely, you had a stint with Sheffield in the British Basketball League between your NBA homes. Yeah. Was that tedious or was that more of a circus John Amici circus no it, it wasn't tedious I, I, I went back to after Cleveland after my, my first year in Cleveland um, I went around Europe a little bit did a decent job um, played for some European championship teams so we were good but then I just realised I went to Italy um, played for a great coach actually Ettore Messina um, great guy but I just didn't want to play anymore. It, you know, every year I tried to get back in the NBA. Every year I was told I was not enough of an athlete. Um, even though I had the skills, I just wasn't a good enough athlete. And I just didn't want to play anymore. I was tired and I I just was done. And so my play that year was abysmal. I mean, I, I almost feel like I need to apologize to the man. And then halfway through the season, I was just like, you know what? I'm done. I'm done with this. And I, was, I, I said to my agent, I'm out. I'm leaving. I'm retiring. Um, and he said, don't retire. Just go home to England. I'll get you a team to play for. I, I wanted to play for Manchester, but the league wouldn't let me play for Manchester because at the time Manchester was stacked. And that's relatively speaking because this is English basketball, which is, as you know, awful. Um so I, I decided to play for Sheffield, played for them for a year. I don't, I can't honestly say that it rekindled my love of the sport, but what it did make me painfully aware of as I was in bus trips going from Sheffield to Plymouth, it made me painfully aware that I'd worked way too hard for that to be how my career ended. So there you go. There's my thanks to the BBL. It was such a gut-wrenchingly awful experience that it made me realise I deserve better. You went back to the NBA eventually, and is it true you turned down quite a lot of money, seventeen million, to go to the Lakers in 2000? Because that, that loyalty with Orlando was there, wasn't it? It's not about loyalty. I mean, I <clears throat> people, people mistake it, really. I, I, it is simply a question of that I tell people all the time that you have to be a person of your word and that you have to, you know, treat the world with some measure of respect and and hope that it does so to you in return but whether it does or not if you don't if you don't operate in this system of principles then you're compromised and so I talk about being a, a man of principle and then suddenly it comes along that the, the only team that really gave me my shot in Orlando 
Um, the only team that gave me my shot wanted needed me to stay. And they told me what what the situation was, and they told me they had no more money, and they 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 the rules just didn't allow them to pay me a full on contract, and um, and they asked me to stay, and so I stayed. And it's not really loyalty because I knew that I was going to get screwed. I mean, I knew that the moment the situation changed, and they could get a, a more athletic, more well known, more famous, more better player, they would, um, and they'd dump me in a heartbeat, but. And that is what happened, but it's not about what they do. It's about what I do. And nowadays, I'm a psychologist, and I work with <clears throat> large organizations, international companies, and high-profile people. And what they demand from me is that, that when they talk to me, that if they tell me something in confidence, that it's not a piece of paper that, that ensures my silence when they tell me the most delicate things about themselves that they feel ashamed or embarrassed about, that it's not my degrees that, that, that keep me ethical. It's my word. And, uh, and so the, the good part of what, what happened with, with uh, turning down the, the 17 million with the Lakers, and I really wanted to go to the Lakers, the good part of that was that now it's something that everybody knows about certainly most of the people I work with. And when they do, it gives them a great deal of confidence to know that that's the kind of person I am. And if I'm not going to betray people over 17 million, I'm unlikely to betray you over, you know, a coaching fee. Sounds like you betrayed your ambition, right? You could have won the title and had the money. Uh, yeah, and but at what cost? At what cost? I mean, the cost would have been that I am one of those people that that when it's easy I'm principled when what's on the table is just I don't know um you know a little endorsement here or or a free car that I can be principled about whether I take something or not but when it's everything I've ever wanted my principles melt away I think that's the worst kind of person in the world if you are principled only when what happens around you isn't really significant, but then the moment it's really significant, your principles kind of disappear. That's not a person I want to be. You had some post moves back in the day. Did you study any particular player? You went up against Akeem Olajuwon. Was that someone you looked at too? I loved Akeem Olajuwon's game. I know him well now. He, li he lives in Birmingham now, uh, uh, which is, I think surprises a lot of people. Uh, but I knew that I was not his kind of athlete. So I borrowed a bit of it, his baseline spin move. But actually, the baseline spin move, and this will take people back a little bit, was more James Worthy. He was the one I, I copied and borrowed from because uh, he was the one I, I saw doing it. little baseline spin move, and it's really key because it doesn't rely on you being a superb athlete. It relies on you having that quick first step. And I had that, but not the kind of athleticism at the end of it. Um, Larry Bird, Kevin McHale. So Kevin McHale is an especially good role model for me because... He's one of the very few athletes in the NBA who was worse than me. Um, but he still managed to compete even as his knees disintegrated because he was so clever around the basket. Larry Bird, the same thing. You know, People often mistake the idea that when you say he wasn't a good athlete, you really are talking relative to Michael Jordan. You're talking relative to the, the athletes in the NBA who are all ridiculous. Um, so it doesn't matter who you're talking about. 
they're an athlete they're in the nba they just may not be the same kind of athlete as as the very best but i watched larry bird play and and just watching him be his guile his cleverness i thought that was the the thing that would get me through because I, I i made no bones about it the thing about me the most uh, athletic bit about me is my brain and that's the bit i had to rely on now i don't want to presume here because you go online and you you look up john amici it says utah was when you started to live a bit more openly gay um but i want to ask you at that point was that is that true first of all and, and, and why so late in your career um it is true um why so late i think it was simply because i really felt that um i was so miserable by that point you can't it's very difficult if you live if you live in an environment where you are lauded by people in orlando for example when i played really well and at the same time you just are deeply isolated it becomes quite miserable i had kids to worry about at that stage so that was another challenge um but fundamentally i was just miserable and i moved to utah and my kids were in high school and uh well one of them was in college one of them was in his final year of high school and then suddenly you are absolutely on your own and there i was so i, I just realized if i didn't find people um who i could hang out with talk to openly um then i was going to be you know psychologically depressed and in trouble so that's what i did i just reached out to people i mean i don't know i do i mean i know the name of the the guy i first talked to is a guy called ryan he's a very good friend of mine uh recently got married actually and he uh he worked at a shop and i wandered into this shop and i was with my friend nancy who lived in arizona she's one of my neighbors good friend of the family and we went we she stayed with me for the first week we drove up together from uh arizona from phoenix to from scottsdale to salt lake city um it was actually uh on 9-11 actually when we did that drive uh or the night before that we woke up in the morning to look at i thought that you know i turned on television i thought it was a terrible disaster program one of those corny disaster programs and i flipped channels and realized very quickly that this was something that was actually happening but you know that she stuck with us she was around for a few weeks then because you couldn't fly you couldn't travel and she was due to drive up with me in my car and then fly back so we just hung out a little bit while i was you know getting to know the team and working out um and we went to a couple of shops and in one of these shops is this guy called ryan and we, we became fast friends and that was my yeah, it was a bit of my anchor my it was definitely a a really helpful relationship that kept me sane throughout my three years there because it, it was at times miserable playing for that coach mm-hmm. who who seemed to enjoy my misery yeah i was going to ask you about jerry sloan you thought that he hated you but did you did you almost have to detach yourself from from a team because this doesn't happen often with professional athletes right no no it happens quite often with professional i mean actually coming out oh no coming out doesn't happen very often that's for sure but being hated by your coach that happens surprisingly often um i mean for me oddly only with him um he and the utah organization have done a really good job of of kind of of um revisionist history there where they've decided that really it was my laziness or something that was a problem uh, but actually my problem there was the fact that 
just very quickly after I got there, it was clear that they just didn't like me. They thought I was uppity. They thought I was too smart for my own good. These are words that they used. They thought, and the biggest thing that really did it was that uh, Sloan asked me one day if I loved basketball, and I said no. And said, I love my kids. Uh, I said the same thing I said to you. you. When you use the same word, love, to talk about a sport, even if it's your profession, and your children, you've, you've already made a mistake. Uh, and he didn't like that answer. In fact, he said, if I didn't love the game, I didn't deserve to play. And sure enough, from that moment on, I played two minutes at the end of every game. With rare exceptions, which meant that my stats dropped down out of the floor. And in Britain, we call it constructive dismissal. In America and in sport, they call it tough. Do you, do you think he, he, knew you, he knew you were gay? I think everybody in Utah knew I was gay. So do you hold that as part of why Sloan treated you like that? Yeah, I mean, even if uh, I do hold it as part of why, um, but I, I don't really care if that's why. I think it's worse that they thought I was uppity. It's worse that they judge a kid from England who'd never touched a basketball when they were 17 and in six years were playing starting, mind you, in the NBA. And somehow to question my passion, to question my drive, to question my loyalty at that stage um, to the sport of basketball should never have happened. It should have been unquestioned. Oh, you're an English kid who started the game at 17 and in six years was starting in the NBA. Fair enough then, should have been the answer. But rather it was, I was seen as some kind of oddity, some annoyance. Um, and I should be really clear, not by my teammates. Not by, I, got, I mean, I didn't get along with every single one of my teammates um, in Utah or anywhere else, but I was a teammate, a proper teammate to, to all my teams. You called Carmelone xenophobe. I mean, most people remember Carmelone, the male man, as, as something just ba just basketball, basically. Could you elaborate on that? His was his was the challenge with Muslims in America, I think. He had a an issue with that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... The, the thing I, I felt... I feel quite conflicted about Carl, actually, because he's... I really, really... I really think he's an amazing role model. I had a po I'd never tell him this, but I had a poster of him on my wall in college hmm. when he was at Louisiana Tech um, because I thought his work ethic, his drive, his no nonsense attitude. There was no, there's no. When you listen to interviews or saw things written as it was back then, you'd never hear him gushing about how he loved the game. He talked about how he was committed to it, how he worked at it, and I really appreciated that. No nonsense. And um, so it was an honor to play with him, even towards the end of his career. Um, he, is, he is the polar opposite to me. Uh, he's an NRA spokesperson, and I think guns are, are for stupid people um, because they, just, they aren't shields, and, and if you have one in your house, you're more likely to die, and every statistic tells us they're bad. Um, whereas he thinks they're, they're, that... He thinks that the founding fathers of America, somewhere in the 1800s, um, actually thought of the contemporary America and thought that having goods was, guns was a good idea, which is not what they thought, probably. But anyway, he, so we're opposite. And yet somehow I find him to be deeply principled, a man of conviction, and one of the few people out there who actually believes what he says, even when what he says is flawed. And in that way, he and I are both similar. 
because I believe what I say, even when what I say is flawed. There might be a slight difference in that I am far more easily swayed by evidence, perhaps. Um, My conviction is really based on what the available evidence is, and when that shifts, I have to shift. Um, I think he's said a lot of dumb stuff over the years, and he would probably think the same of me. But what you cannot question is that he is a man, he and his wife Kay both, they are people of deep deep conviction and principle. And I will be always grateful for the fact that I played on a team with that guy. There's, a, there's positives and negatives. Players that supported you and, and made comments. Uh, Andre Karolenko, excuse my pronunciation of Malinka, is it? He called, Malinka, yeah. You called uh, Malinka the little one in Russian, that is. Um, there was a story, a great story, about how you bought him some champagne because you couldn't go to a party. Could you tell that story of the support he showed you in Utah? I mean, essentially, he uh, it was I think was it a New Year's party or a Christmas party? I don't actually remember now. I know I wrote about it, but um, it was either a New Year's New Year's party or a Christmas party, and he invited me to his party, and was very explicit about the fact that you know I can come and I should bring whoever I love, um, which was a clumsy but beautiful way of, of inviting whoever my partner was, uh, which I didn't have, but. Um, and I thought it was really lovely, but unfortunately, I was already having a big old gay Christmas party, so I couldn't, I couldn't go. Um, so I did. I sent him a, a bottle of Jean-Paul Gaultier um, dressed uh, champagne of some description. Uh, so it was essentially a bottle of champagne that was wrapped up in a leather bodice. It was very uh, over the top, but I hope he enjoyed it. I know his wife did. Back with John shortly. I just wanted to tell you about our sponsors over at redzonesports.com. The US Sports Podcast is sponsored by redzonesports.com, the bespoke British bookmaker for American sports, as well as the best odds on US sports, money can't buy prize promotions, and their very own cheerleading squad. You can get an exclusive £60 deposit match bonus as a new customer by using deposit code USSP on your first deposit. Red Zone is for over 18s only. Betting should be fun, so please gamble responsibly. That's redzonesports.com. Enter deposit code USSP when you register. Back to John. Um, let's put this in the locker room for sporting purposes. Why do you think a lot of men think that gay people fancy them? There's so many good ways to answer that, none that are really politically correct. Many men are narcissists. Um, they believe that the world revolves around them to some measure or another. And even if they know the entire world doesn't revolve around them, they think the world around them revolves around them. And this means that they think lots of things like that. This means that they think that women should like them. If they're heterosexual, they think that women should fancy them. And they think that women should accept their advances because, hey, I'm desirable and you should. And that fits right into this idea that if every woman should fancy you in your head, in your tiny little Neanderthal head, if if a heterosexual man thinks that every woman should fancy them, you probably think that everybody around you fancies you to some degree or another. And And then for straight people, it's different because you think, well, for straight men, they admire you. They turn that love into an admiration or they turn that love into fandom or they turn that love into a bromance. But when there's an actual gay person around them, they suddenly think, oh, my God, that's terrible. They're probably just going to pounce on me. Um, you know, I would say the same things to these people as I say to them all. Is that don't flatter yourself. I mean, do not flatter yourself. There are so many reasons this is not true. Um, 
and it's just so it's so childish that it's hard to even fathom i think part of it is that people just don't realize what what being lgbt is they can't translate it to their own life um if what you fear is because you are essentially essentially a, a um an unfettered horn dog who can't stop laying your hands and other body parts on women around you, then I would suggest to you that you shouldn't imagine that everybody's like that. And maybe the problem is with you. Um, I'm a 46-year-old man and I work a lot and pretty much sleep and wine and whiskey and the occasional cigar is the excitement of my life. And if somebody else wanted to join me in that, that would be great. But I snore and they'd need to not be around too much. So this is the level of excitement that you're going to get you know this is most people's most people's lives are are not consumed with the the thoughts of sex i often think it's fascinating that straight men seem to somehow have great insights into the lives the sex lives of gay people um it's intriguing that they would have so much potentially inside knowledge that has evaded me for nearly five decades it doesn't seem like it would bother you at all, but did you see teammates change the way they walked around you or like in the locker room or the showers, anything like that? Nope, nope, never. Um, I saw teammates who, who behaved exactly as they always did. Locker rooms are, are bastions of male intimacy in the best possible way. They are places where men don't have to pretend they're not upset when they're upset and they don't have to express their upset and anger every single time. That's a really healthy thing. There are places where when your teammates upset, you can throw your arms around them. When they're happy, you can lift them off the floor and kiss them on the cheek. And nobody thinks that there's anything untoward. It's a deeply healthy thing. It's a really important thing for, for many men who don't have that outlet somewhere else. If you change your behavior in the locker room because you think somehow a gay person is going to violate the, the rules of the locker room, not only are you kidding yourself about that gay person's approach to you, you're robbing yourself of something really valuable and denigrating a gay person while doing it. If you send a gay person to the showers first or make them wait until everyone's finished, which is what happened to Michael Sam when he tried out, then all you're doing is showing your great ignorance and, and, and robbing the locker room of its oxygen, robbing it of its power to be something really useful for people, whether it be in an on-field kind of constructive performance way or just in a resilience enhancing way have you spoken to current nba players who are gay but haven't come out and said it yet and and i mean there's there's no point in me asking you how many you think there are but it's 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 a fact that there are do you think they're not coming out because they're worried about their legacy or something different i think i mean i have spoken to athletes um on both sides of the atlantic but the the reality is for them for a lot of the athletes, especially in the NBA, th their worry is not about the NBA. They know what Adam Silver's going to do, which is nothing but awesome. They know how most teams will respond um, in terms of teammates. Uh, not all of them. There would still be troubles. We know there'd be some hassles. We know some of the owners are a little less mm, open than others. Um but their problem is that they don't want to go from being this guy who came from this tough part of this city, this um, this kind of interesting journey they've come on with great challenges to overcome, find themselves in the NBA and then find themselves a veteran in the NBA 
having worked so hard to build up that reputation of the man who worked and got themselves to this amazing point to the next day to wake up after people know that they're gay and suddenly find themselves transformed from something that is the product of all their efforts, all their good decisions, all their trials and tribulations, and all of a sudden they're the product of a a meme. What do you think of today's athlete? In what way? You have so much to say, and I, I wonder, I want to get into your love and profession, of course, psychology and all that, but what do you think generally about their intellect? Uh, athletes are, are not I mean athletes are the same kind of dumb or not dumb as everybody else um, but it's all contextual right I mean I'm incredibly dumb in certain areas I know nothing about coding and web design and branding and there's lots of things that I have no idea about it's just that I <laughs> I find other people who, who do those bits around me because I'm because uh, that's what I'm smart about bits that I'm ignorant about I try and either fill myself by reading learning studying or I find other people who fill those gaps athletes are much the same as anybody else there are some people who choose to go on that same journey where they either fill those gaps within themselves through education learning conversation debate or they find other people to fill those gaps as you as you see with the good ones who find themselves a good lawyer and a good uh, real estate person and a good lawyer and a good whatever else. And you have others who simply play basketball and ignore the fact or don't care about the fact that they have huge gaps in their understanding and knowledge. Dr. Stephen Peters, obviously the chimp paradox, took, the, took this model to Liverpool, the England national team, mm-hmm. cycling... Um, I know you know him well. What would your model be if you were to run a sports team? I don't know if I have a complex uh, initial model, but I, I mean, I operate. We operate something called step theory, which is the idea of, of understanding that every decision you make counts. Every decision you make is either a step up or a step down. It's either a step towards progress or away from. It's a step towards success or, or a stop towards failure. It's it's good or bad. It's that binary. Um, And the second part of step theory, which is perhaps more important than the first, is the idea that the size of the step is not related to the size of the impact or the consequence. So in terms of basketball, there are days when you will get up and you're so sore and you'll decide that today you'll go to practice but you won't lift. And that choice to not lift you can't tell whether the size of that impact will be you are a tenth of a percent less strong by mid-season or whether the choice to do that will mean that a muscle soreness that you might have been aware of if you'd lifted manifests tragically in a game and it blows out your achilles or it blows out your shoulder or whatever it is you've no idea the size of the consequence based on that one decision and that's how that's how we operate. That's how my organization operates, by helping people understand this in every single context um, that there is. I think if you could get athletes to understand that, they'd be a lot smarter with a lot of things they do. Uh, if you could get the president to understand, the president-elect to understand that. I mean, do you think when he sent that 
Do you think when he had the, the decision, he was called up by Taiwan and he decided to go and meet them? He thinks it's a tiny thing because he doesn't know about step theory. So he thinks, I just, I just, I talked to somebody on the phone for half an hour. But what it's done is cause an international upset between America and China. The size of the step, a half hour phone call, is not always related to the size of the consequence. An international dispute <laughs> with another superpower. This is a bit of a jump, but uh, you once said about coaches that they're emotionally illiterate. Now, sadly and horrifically, we've been seeing a lot of cases of child abuse recently in football and now gymnasts in the, in the US. It's prevalent and it's horrible. Did you ever experience or hear about this sort of thing? Because it's obviously happening, it's happened and it's happening now. I went to Penn State University. So we have a, a fairly disgusting, uh, I suppose now history, with Jerry Sandusky and his child abuse scandal there. Um, Jerry Sandusky was one of the first people I met when I went on campus because he was the guy who would approach all new athletes especially the ones he thought were going to be good or were, were touted. And he would tell them it was our responsibility to work with the community, so, which, is, which is difficult because you suddenly realize that he was using us to, to entrap young people with our, with our status and our prestige into this program where he could get his hooks in them. In terms of seeing it face, firsthand, no. Um, it's it's one of the things that worries me greatly because coaches the coaches who do this aren't aren't the emotionally illiterate, illiterate ones actually they these people are sociopathic predators they are often very very charming they if you listen to the narrative of some of the men now who were abused as boys in football They'll talk to you about how these men recognize when that family was in distress, when wives and husbands were divorcing, when money was tight, when there were other difficulties and stresses. And they used that to get in there. They used it in a really sophisticated way to, um, to enable their abuse by convincing family members, mothers and fathers, that they were there to help. So that's not emotionally illiterate. That's that's evil, but it's emotionally literate evil. Uh, my worry is that in sports, it's not just these terrible, this minority of people who are doing terrible damage um, by abusing children sexually. You've got a much larger percentage of people who are being abused physically. Um, you know, according to the Child Protection and Sport Unit, about ten percent of young people in sport experience physical harm which is crazy when you think about it but what's more depressing than that is that if you look at studies of young people in sport somewhere upwards of 60 percent and sometimes it's as high as 75 percent experience psychological harm and this is not people who've just been told they're not very good and and now they're sad i want to go home to my dad no this is people who on a day-to-day -day basis are beaten down psychologically made to feel worthless, useless, um, bad, awful. And that's their experience of sport. And that, 75%, uh, it's not that it's more important than those who get sexually abused or physically abused, but we don't ever talk about them. 
because we're not really interested in anything that isn't sexual abuse. We're not, we're not even that interested in physical abuse. We think boys should be able to take it. Oh, you can't take being knocked around a bit by your, by your coach. Oh, you're soft is the normal approach, which is ridiculous. And it's even worse when it comes to the emotional abuse because then you've got a whole set of boys who have been taught through sport that the only, the only valid expression of your emotion is anger. And, that, and these are the same boys who, when they're frustrated, they get angry. When they're upset, they get angry. When they're hurt, they get angry. It's the only response they know. And then they get out into society. And we all know that that's just the worst thing you can possibly have. Somebody who's all their emotions, all the great, you know, the great stretch of emotions you could possibly feel get channeled into one output, which is anger. That can't be good. And it can't be good for their children. It can't be good for the co-workers. And if they're on a sports team, it can't be good for your team. I'm also very intrigued what you think about Phil Jackson's comments to LeBron James's business associates. He called them a posse. He was referring to Maverick Carter, Rich Paul, and they're now worth a billion dollars. And LeBron James is very successful. But do, do you think we read too much into this? Or would, would he have said this to a white person, for instance? That's the question, isn't it? I, I like Phil Jackson. I really wanted to play for him in Los Angeles. I think he's smart and sharp, but he he's flawed, like all of us, by the limitations of our of our broader experience. I think he's super super comfortable with the idea of of high attaining, um, high skill individuals within sport. And I think outside of sport, his experience of high skill individuals is probably very monochromatic. Um. We know that he just wouldn't, and I I don't know him tremendously well, but I know him well enough to know that that's not the word he would use if it was was not a a black person he was talking about. Because white people don't use the word posse about themselves. That's not what happens. Instantly now somebody will read this and say, or listen to this, sorry, and say, yeah, I do. But fundamentally you know the broad majority of people don't use that term about about white people at all um and it just seems crazy if you know their business associates just call them business associates it's just not that hard you couldn't spare the extra syllables it's it's like a sh- it's like shooting yourself in the foot it just doesn't make any sense he he's too powerful to make that kind of statement the more powerful you are, you have to be more vigilant about what you say. Um, you know, we had this conversation actually in my office the other day. A lot of times people think, I know they think that I say the first thing that comes out of my my brain. And that is not what happens. It's simply I think faster than most people. Everything I say is calculated. And if it really pisses you off, it's probably supposed to. But I don't say something that will come back and haunt me that I wasn't aware was going to come back and haunt me. But sometimes those things need to be said. You like to piss off the the BBL now and again. And uh, you went on a bit of a Twitter rant back in August of this year. Um, You say focus, effort and execution. Well, you you had six major problems with UK basketball. The one I liked was you said insurgent, fractured, publicly funded, power grabbing cottage industries posing as pathways and the fact that basketball is still emerging. Now, some people think you're overly negative about the sport. Are you saying these words and then putting them into action? Are you helping out actively, or do you just think that we could do a lot better? 
Well, I don't just think that we could do a lot better. It's it's provable that we could do a lot better. We have the worst professional league in Europe. It's worse than Belgium's professional league. It's worse than it's worse than Luxembourg's professional league. Luxembourg's professional league is is fully professional. They 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 have a, a minimum wage. You can actually look up what their players get paid and have some confidence that that's what they actually get paid. I, I mean, I don't... There's nothing about enjoying um, beating up the BBL. The BBL's terrible, and British kids deserve better. And I don't know what kind of person would stand by while an organisation with zero transparency, no minimum wage... Um, uh, you know, if you look them up on Company's House, as I have, you cannot find out um, what money they have and how they spend it. The, the, this is not what we deserve. Um, most of these organizations do exist on a basis of taking money, public money, through Hoots for Health and other such initiatives um, and funneling it into their own organizations and eventually paying their players with it um this is an organization that set up its own basketball foundation um in order to get money from the government that they then funnel into their own organizations they've not been able to do that because the rules for the spending of that money has been uh, really strictly adhered to luckily but um i mean does anybody think we don't deserve better than than a league that doesn't pay a minimum wage. Um, I, I, in the last three years, I've had th three different BBL players living in my house for periods of between one month and six months because they didn't have any money once they either were kicked off their team, as in their team let them go, or during the summertime, they just didn't have any where to live. And I don't think I should be the social safety net for the BBL. And I don't think I don't think they should be allowed to operate in such a slapdash way. Um, and people can say whatever they like. Um, I don't make any money off basketball in this country. Zero. None. Never have. Never done anything but put money into the sport. Uh, who are you going to trust? I've got a personal take on this because I played for Worcester Wolves. And when I was 17, I used to go into the university, that's where they played, and just shoot after school because I played on the under-18s team. And naturally you think, oh, I'm not allowed to go here. This is where we play our games. This is where we train in the evening. And the director of basketball at the time, I don't know if he still is, Mick Donovan, he, was, uh, he kicked me out a couple of times, said, you can't come in here, you're not insured. Uh, I argued that I was just trying to better myself and I played for this team and eventually banned me from training, basically. So that's another issue isn't it it's coaching and it's understanding that there should be an actual pathway to getting into a first team or being able to better yourself yeah i mean i, I don't think there's there's any hope of that with basketball with the bbl at the moment i do i don't think there's any even potential pathway i don't think the bbl's part of any pathway for real success for the future i've said it before and i'll say it again that we could have a, a, a an olympic class team as in a team that could actually play in the Olympics and win in the Olympics in about seven years um, would it need some funding absolutely would it need uh, 
would it need us to find Americans or, or, or Brits or Americans with British passports around the world? No, no. It would need us looking and saying, we are going to take um, 40 16- and 17-year-olds. We're going to mix them with a smattering of the current GB team. And we are going to work like no one has seen work. We're going to fix us in a couple of locations across Britain. And we are going to work every day to make us the most fundamentally sound team available. We're going to be the most in-shape team available and fundamentally sound. Um, if we did that, augment it with some of the players that we do have over there, Luke Nelson and, and the like, possibly. But but fundamentally, we'd have a homegrown core of people. And yet, would they event, would they leave then? Are they, would they become our team once they got old enough? Would they play professionally elsewhere? Yes. Yeah, because we don't have a domestic league for them to play in. If we did, then maybe we could keep some of them around. But even then, some of them would go. But they'd at least be in France or Germany playing high-quality ball. They would be in Italy or Greece or Spain playing high-quality basketball uh, and augmenting it. There's no part of the BBL that's part of that future. So if I said that we've come further in race and sexuality, let's do sport in general, is that true or false? And, and where are we in that with those two? I mean, I think the LGBT community can be rightly proud of making great uh, political and policy progress um, in the last decade. Um, I was very fortunate to, to chat with uh, President Obama when he came to London. Um, it, it was really great, actually, and, and he gave me a small bit of, of credit for some of the progress that's been made in America in the last 10 years, which made me quite, quite proud. But what I think is irritating now is that we're in a situation where the plight of black and brown people, um, the situation around migrants who again fall into that black and brown people section for the most part, has actually stepped backwards. Uh, you know, it used to be that I was far more likely to be abused for being a gay person than for being a black person and now that has flipped in the last two three years where on a weekly basis somebody does something overtly racist and then what's interesting is on a weekly basis somebody does something overtly racist and on a weekly basis somebody else will do something overtly racist and then tell me it's not and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that you know I tell people I've been stopped and searched four times in London in a year and you know what they tell me don't wear a hoodie as if how I dress is really the reason that I get I mean I'm for a I'm 46 years old I don't wear hoodies very often but as if that's it and so there has been this progress and I think the LGBT community has some blame for some of this in that they seem to have forgotten that other people exist and that even within the LGBT community there are brown and black people who should perhaps be taken along on this journey but in sport, we stopped the bananas from falling onto football fields. Um, but we still can't seem to have more than one black manager in the Premier League. And I doubt very much whether that's a question of their qualifications. There's a lot of work still to be done. Can I just say, I say this on the basis of wanting to win. I am not interested in people. I'm not interested in creating some kind of 90s Benetton ad where there's one of everybody hanging out. 
It's not that. It's just that the last time I checked, England's not very good at football. They lose to tiny countries who mostly hop around volcanoes. Uh, I think it's maybe time to think maybe we should find some new people, some new blood, some new ideas. And that is what diversity is about. That's what inclusion is about. John Amici, thank you for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. How about that, everyone? Thanks to John Amici for spending nearly an hour with me uh, the other day for this podcast. Fascinating views on all sorts of subjects. I could talk to John all day. Didn't really have a chance to talk about psychology. One of the things I wanted to ask him was what fascinates him most about the human brain with him dealing with people all the time. Uh, but thanks to John. And uh, now we'll get to my four storylines. Of course, I have to start with the tragic death of Craig Sager, longtime Turner Sports broadcaster. He died last Thursday, last week at the age of 65. He was a Technicolor marvel, remembered for his colourful suits, even more colourful personality. But let's not forget how good he was at his job. I think Sega um, was asked a couple of times if he thought that the colourful suits would take away from the actual work he's doing. But he didn't mind that, and his questions were so good, he always got something out of a player or a coach. Whoever he was interviewing, he did his research, he worked very hard in his profession that he worked in for nearly, well, more than 40 years, actually. He worked in so many sports as well. People think he's just an NBA guy, and of course the NBA was his home, but he's also worked in college football, the NFL, World Series, Pan Am Games, the World Cup, golf, even the Olympics. He's travelled far and wide to cover sport, and I still go back to this, my favourite story about Craig Sager. Hank Aaron hit his 715th home run back on April 8th, 1974, which broke Babe Ruth's record. As he reaches home plate, and he's getting absolutely mobbed, Aaron. This has been a long time in the, in the, in the waiting. It's the start of the season in Atlanta. There's 22-year-old Craig Sager with a small microphone and tape recorder. And he gets the question to Hank Aaron, what does this mean to you? And Hank Aaron just says to Craig, thank God it's over. And that recording is now in the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Craig Sager was working at a local radio station in Florida, making $95 a week. There was no press box room when he called up to try and get to this game. So he flew from Florida to Atlanta and they managed to squeeze him on the first base line. And when Hank Aaron hit the home run, Craig Sager thought of nothing more than just to run onto the field and see what he could get in this long white trench coat. Go back and watch the home run and see if you can spot the journalist, the reporter there. There's only one of them at the start when, it, when Hank Aaron rounds third base. You will see it's Craig Sager. Another fantastic relationship that Sager had was with Greg Popovich the Spurs head coach, these mandatory between-quarter interviews that we know Greg Popovich does not like doing, that we know he's very awkward, sometimes very blunt most of the time, let's be honest. And Sega, that's why he was so good at his job, because he turned Popovich's misery and hatred for these interviews into something comedic. It was just funny. And when Sega was first diagnosed with leukaemia in 2014, TNT brought in his son, Craig Sega Jr., and he had to interview Greg Popovich and Povich delivered a beautiful message to the camera. He promised to ease up on Sega when he came back. And when Sega was cleared for the start of the 2015-16 season, he had to interview Popovich again. Povich said to Sega, this is the first time I've enjoyed doing this ridiculous interview. And then he said, now ask me a couple of inane questions. <laughs> Sega never did a finals game, bizarrely, crazily, until game six last season between the Warriors and the Cavaliers. He shared the duty with Doris Burke, eight days of chemotherapy before he'd worked this game. 
He was loved by players who all said his suits made them look better. And I think we should love Craig Sager, not just for what he did for the profession, the sport, and lots of sports, but we should love him for the fight that he put up over the last two years. He was always happy. There was only one way with Craig Sager. Obviously, I didn't know him personally. I actually met him once in Golden State last year, um, and he was gracious. People were there that you know probably shouldn't have been there that were in the press room because the Warriors were so good, and everyone wanted a photo with Sags. He gave people his time, and I remember him wearing this suit, and he had his big trainers on, a lot taller than I thought he would be. But Craig Sager will be dearly missed, and we should remember him for the fight he put up. And it shows us, really, that we should stay happy and be grateful for what we have, because Sager, every single day, put everything he had into what he was doing. On to the new collective bargaining agreement, which the NBA have struck now, the Labour deal. The deadline loomed last week, but owners and players came to a tentative agreement. It still needs ratifying, but the deadline has been extended now to January the 13th, so it looks like they're going to have a new seven-year uh, collective bargaining agreement, which will start for the 2017-2018 season. So the next opt-out clause won't be until 2022. So hooray, let's dumb it down because it can get quite complicated even for uh, the smartest of people. Adam Silver, the commissioner, and the Players Association Executive Director, Michelle Roberts, they've learned from their predecessors, David Stern and Billy Hunter. There was no lockout here. There's been no lawsuit, no regrets and people didn't want to miss any basketball so that's what we are happy about the most as fans the categories of revenue for basketball related income have expanded so players will net 1.5 billion dollars more than 2011 the split is still 51 percent to players and 49 percent to owners in terms of bri that's basketball related income 45 percent increase in minimum salary so the lowest of the 11 different versions this year was just over $540,000. So that's going to really go up. Average NBA salary is now $8.5 million starting in 2017. And that'll be at $10 million by 2020. There'll be larger rosters in the new deal beginning in 17-18 again from the current 15 to either 16 or 17 players. That'll create at least 30 new jobs. We don't always think of it like that. There's also going to be something called two-way contracts. Uh, so player is obviously paid differently in the D-League at the moment, the Development League. At the moment, the highest wage you can get in the D-League is $26,000, which is obviously a lot lower than in the NBA. But if you do now make the jump to the NBA and you're kind of crisscrossing between the D-League and the NBA, you'll be paid differently in the NBA. So this means that players are less inclined to go abroad, and, and that's a good thing uh, with talent coming through in the NBA. Regular season is also going to be extended seven days. I think this is the most obvious and interesting one for the casual fan. Teams criticised recently for resting players on back-to-backs, four games in five nights. You look at the Cavaliers the other day, that back-to-back at home against Memphis and then away at Memphis. Kyrie Irving sat out the first game and then LeBron, Kevin Love and Kyrie didn't make the trip to Memphis. That's an average of 70 points not travelling with the team. Fans were unhappy. Uh, If we go back to a couple seasons ago when David Stern, the former commissioner, fined the Spurs $250,000 because Greg Popovich didn't take... Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili or Danny Green to Miami. But that was a national TV game. I think that's what uh, a lot of what had to do with it. But this is trying to negate those crazy schedules where you have a lot of games in a, in a few days. Uh, I don't think it's going to stop coaches resting their players. Uh, and it's also making the season longer, despite what you think about rest. It's just making the season longer. Pensions are going to rise 50% for retired players. Uh, the one-and-done rule in college is still uh, being looked into. No change as yet, but that will be uh, probably rectified uh, the next one, hopefully. 
so we can get players uh, at least two years in college basketball before making the jump to the NBA. So we have a better product basically in both sports if you give college players longer there and then they're more seasoned, ready to go into the pros. But hooray, no strikes. Uh, the labor deal has been solved pretty much. So that's the NBA CBA. For all the criticism that the AFC South gets in the NFL, we have got quite the finish in that division this year. London's second team, the Jacksonville Jaguars, is significant news on Sunday night for UK fans and obviously Jacksonville fans. Gus Bradley was fired, the head coach, after the Jags lost in Houston. They blew a 20-8 to lead. They've now lost nine in a row. Bradley's out the door with a 14-48 and record. His 2-2-6 winning percentage, the lowest in the Super Bowl era, by a coach who's coached at least 50 games. They fired their offensive coordinator early this season, but that didn't help. Bradley stuck with Blake Bortles, the quarterback, who has been struggling. Remember last season, he set franchise records in passing yards and touchdowns, but he's trended down uh, since then. So many skilled position players that are very good. They've built, they've, you know, they've improved the defense. They've made a lot of new additions. They've spent a lot of money. Shahid Khan has invested a lot in this team. But Bradley just hasn't been able to get the job done. And he was fired after the game, was back on the charter plane going home with the team after this. So that would have been a tough plane ride for him. But general manager Dave Caldwell will keep his job. And he's in charge of hiring a new coach. If you look at the options, you might have a, a quick gander at the offensive coordinators around the league. In Carolina, you've got Mike Shuler. In Atlanta, Carl Shanahan. But Bortles is the real mystery that he couldn't improve on last season. I think he looks you know, a little bit out of shape. Got a bit of a belly on him. Um, this follows the Jeff Fisher firing, of course. Around that division, Tennessee, what a great win they had in Kansas City, 1917. They didn't go for an extra point when they were 17-16 down and just scored a touchdown. They failed that. And I think the coach, Mike Malarkey, he would have been absolutely criticised if they had lost this game because he had a chance to tie it up. But sometimes fortune favours the brave. And 8-6, and six, tie with Houston after this huge field goal that won the game. Uh, they're tied with Houston atop the AFC South. They've won three games in 2015, Tennessee. So they've already improved massively on that. And an awesome stat here. The Chiefs have lost two games this year, both 1917 and both to the two top picks in the 2015 draft. Jameis Winston and, of course, Marcus Mariota. Brock Osweiler, the other news in the AFC South, he was dropped uh, against the Jags. In the first half, $72 million he was given over a four-year contract this offseason. He was benched for Tom Savage, who threw for 240-plus yards. The Jags were 20-8 to up, as I mentioned, and then they lose. Tom Savage comes in, plays well, and he will start this weekend for Houston. And how rough for Osweiler, the Texans fans were cheering when he came off and Savage replaced him. And the Colts won a big game in Minnesota, puts their record at 7-7. They have the best quarterback in this division, Andrew Luck. They roasted the Vikings. So this division, with two weeks to go in the season, keep your eyes on it. Finally, and I mentioned it in my second point about the collective bargaining agreement, resting players. I can tell you now that the NBA cannot do a single thing about this. David Stern fined the Spurs $250,000, like I mentioned when the Spurs didn't take four of their best players to Miami. It was the only game they were going to play in Miami that season. What's the difference between that game and this Memphis game where the Cavs didn't take Love, Irving and LeBron? Adam Silver is player-friendly, yes. But how is Memphis any different? Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't a national TV game. It was a local broadcast. I think that has a lot to play here. But Stern said about the Spurs a few seasons ago that it did a disservice to the league and the fans. 
but it's not up to NBA coaches to help opponents' commercial prospects. What can the league possibly do here? Maintenance schedules are becoming frequent. Kyrie Irving rested a whole week, essentially, missing these two games in Memphis, sprinkled in with certain off days. He missed a week, which was good for him to stay at home and, and rest up. He had knee surgery, remember, back in 2015. And there's a lot of criticism from fans, of course, who pay good money to go to these games. Uh, the one sign that I saw in Memphis, LeBron ruined my Christmas. Memphis had their third highest crowd behind the season opener and when the Warriors came to town. But I don't think Tyron Lewis are doing, anything, doing a disservice. He is focused on the playoffs. The Cavs are going to be the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, even if they're not. They will go to the NBA Finals if their guys are healthy. And that's all Tyron Lue has to worry about. LeBron James, you know, players don't, don't play 82 games anymore. LeBron James has never done it. Players don't go a whole season. Michael Jordan uh, played 82 games. I think it was more of a medal of honor back then. Now it's all about maintenance, keeping healthy, getting yourself to the postseason. And a lot of these players, like LeBron James has played 199 playoff games. Two and a half seasons worth of, of playoff basketball right there. He needs to rest up. These guys don't have to travel every night if it makes sense to keep them at home just for one game. But yes, disappointing. If I go to a game and if I fly from the UK uh, in April, I'm going to New York. And if I, if I turn up to a game and some superstar that I've come to watch isn't there, of course I'll be, I'll be bummed. But I understand the process that coaches have to take their players through. By the way, Christmas Day... Three NBA games to keep your eye on. Five o'clock UK time. Celtics at Knicks. Half seven is the big one. Warriors at Cavaliers, a rematch of the 2015 and 2016 NBA Finals. And 10 p.m. Chicago at San Antonio. Enjoy those Christmas fixtures. And that's all I've got time for, really. Four storylines from me. John Amici, thank you again for your time. It was great to have John on the podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. Just a bit of housekeeping. You can find me on Twitter at Max underscore Whittle. You can find the US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle on its official page on Audio Boom. You can also download and subscribe at iTunes. Please leave a review if you would be so kind. And remember our partners at Red Zone Sports. If you go to redzonesports.com, register on the top right of the page and enter deposit code USSP. That's USSP for US Sports Podcast. And you will double your deposit money. Uh, So if you put £10 in there, you will be betting with £20 up to £60. Thanks for listening. Have a great Christmas. Next week, we're going to be going through the best of 2016 in American sport with the Guardians' Les Carpenter. But until then, enjoy the games.